Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, what a great privilege it is after all that good singing to look into the scriptures. And I feel real privileged to be able to have that opportunity with you today. So you might take your Bibles and turn to 1 John. We're looking at chapter 2. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working through a series in 1 John. And this morning, we're going to be talking about safeguards in Christian living. Any one of you who've had young children will quickly think back uh, to a time when you were raising them. If you have young children, you quickly become familiar with a term called childproofing. And you know what childproofing is all about. You cannot assume anything in your life once you have little toddlers running around your feet. And if you do, then you live to regret it. Even things like dog food, dog food bowls and things like that. I remember um, walking into our house one day and there was a little trail of mighty dog tender chunks and they led all around through the house and then finally out on the back porch. And as I followed this little trail, I discovered my daughter, Rebecca, who at that time was about two years old. And she had on all these little dresses and was out playing with dolls sitting on the front porch. And I said, Rebecca, what are you up to? And she looked up at me and gave me this big grin, but her cheeks were just packed like a chipmunk <laughs> with mighty dog, tender chunks. What's worse, she liked it. <laughs> In fact, she's been in therapy for a number of years now. <laughs> Periodically, we can see her sneak away to grab a little tender chunk there on the side. Well, it's moments like that and others that you learn you have to safeguard children so you move these dangerous substances up on higher shelves so they won't get into it. You put those little plastic dealies on cabinets where you can't, you can't open it and they can't either so they can pull all the pots and pans out of the house. You put sides on beds so they won't roll off and fall on the floor. You put gates and doorways up so they can't wander outside into, a, into the street or into a pool. You put these little plastic things on doorknobs so they can't open up a door and get out. Of course, you can't get out either, but that's okay. You have all these kinds of safeguards that are there to protect life, to promote health, to keep that person who really is more valuable to you than your life from harming themselves. That's what safeguards are all about. As we look at the scripture this morning that's before us, it safeguards that the Apostle John has on his mind. You see, he's a parent. In fact, when we look at verse 28, he's going to call those who read this letter little children. He, he would address us that way. He's an aged apostle. And just like any parent, he's thinking about what's going to occur in the future. And just like you as a parent, and I know this all too well, you wish you could give your child all the experiences you've had so that they won't make the mistakes that you've made and hurt themselves, so they can enjoy things that you wish you could have enjoyed, but you never took the time to enjoy it, so you can deposit all that into their life. But the only way you can do it is just warn them about it, to offer these safeguards that you hope they will listen to and attend to. One of those safeguards, or one of those issues that I think uh, John is wanting to give these little children over a lifetime, even into eternity, is confidence. Now, what parent wouldn't want his child, son or daughter, to have confidence? No one wants to raise a child who lacks confidence, who has fears that keep them from adventuring out into life, who when they meet people or confront circumstances are going to be 
people who think more about what the situation could do to them rather than what they could learn from the experience and have an adventure in the experience. We all want our children to feel good about himself or herself. But we also know that confidence is not something that you're born with, right? Confidence is something that doesn't just happen. It's an acquired trait. It's something that occurs as you grow up and you develop. And hopefully the children within your home are growing up with a great sense of confidence. So when we look in this passage, starting in verse 28, it's confidence that's on John's mind. And he, he knows there needs to be some safeguards put up if we, as his little children, are going to finish out this life and step into eternity confident. Here's how he says it. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame when we come into his presence or at his, at his coming. Did you know that the most frequently mentioned truth that is in the New Testament concerns the reappearing of Jesus Christ? You can almost find it on every page of the New Testament in one way or another. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is it mentioned so frequently in the pages of Scripture? I believe it is because all of human history, whether corporately as a human race or whether individualistically for each one of us who are sitting in this audience here this morning. For all of us, corporately and individually, we're all moving in time to the same location. And what is that location? Well, the coordinates are there in verse 28. The location is that it says when He appears, not if He appears, but when He appears, and He will appear to each one of us either at our death, because Corinthians says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or if we tarry till the end, Jesus Christ will intervene again in human history, whether it's at the end of time or at the end of our lifetime, each one of us is going to end up in the same location. And that similar location is this. It will be, and listen, it will be a face-to-face -face individual appointment encounter with Jesus Christ. Did you know that's where you're headed? You are headed to a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we will all appear before Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done in his lifetime, whether good or bad. From John's perspective, there's this great moment coming for all of us. And as a parent, he wants us to face that moment and come to that moment inspired with confidence. Now, if you look at verse 28, there are two potential responses at that moment. There's the one that I just mentioned, confidence, that we stand before Jesus Christ and feel moved to even get closer to Him in that moment, kind of like the Apostle Paul exudes confidence in 2 Timothy 4 where he says, For in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which I will receive at His appearing. I mean, this is a guy that's looking forward to that event. But there's another, you see it there, it says that we not shrink away in shame. Believe it or not, that will happen to some. We have a good model of that in our forefather Adam. When he sinned and at the coming of God in the garden, rather than running to him like a young son would run and jump into the arms of his daddy, instead he goes and hides behind a bush. And when God calls out to him, what does Adam say? 
He said, I hid myself, for I was afraid and ashamed. There's a moment coming for each one of us, a moment in which we will either feel a desire to step forward or a desire to shrink back. You know, there are a number of very prominent Christian teachers who challenge that kind of assumption here. In fact, I listened to one this week, and they feel like when we come face to face with Jesus Christ, that all that we have done wrong, our lifestyle will be overlooked. It will be forgotten, wiped away. There will be no regrets and no shame. It will be a day of smiles and rewards only. And I want you to know that really feels good to say it that way. But it doesn't seem to correspond with what we read in light of verse 28. 1 Corinthians 3 seems to teach the opposite too because it says on that day we will stand with all our works, all our life before God. And all of it will be tested with His purifying gaze. And those things that are burned up, it says, we shall suffer a loss. Those things that remain, we shall receive a reward. Now it doesn't mean that I'm not going to be saved. If I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm going to be saved. We're going to be forgiven in that moment. But here's what I want you to hear. But our lifestyle and our life works, they won't be forgotten. If I were to summarize it, I'd say it this way. If I have embraced Christ in faith, I'm going to be saved. I know that. There's no works involved in that. That's just a commitment to Him. But on the other hand, how I've lived with Christ, how I've moved through this life in response to Him, pursuing Him, will determine how I will feel when I stand saved before Him in this face-to-face -face encounter. And in that moment, I'm going to feel like either moving forward or getting it over with. That's what verse 28 tells us. Now there's an application, I think, that jumps off the page here that you've probably already thought about. It's one that maybe it's a good time to take an evaluation now and just simply ask yourself because time is not over for us. The point is, at this point, if it all ended today, if I had that appointment this afternoon, would I be looking forward to it or would I be dreading it? If there's any thought of fear at this moment, then this is why this verse is here because John is wanting to offer you some safeguards. And the preeminent safeguard that he would offer is found in three little words in verse 28. Do you see it? It says, little children, hear the words, abide in Him. You see, abiding is our safeguard for confidence. Our confidence in the appearing of Christ is safeguarded by our abiding in Him now. And how do you abide? All the New Testament is a manual on how to abide with Jesus Christ. And I wish we could take the time and enumerate all the verses and what all those verses mean. But this morning, just to help you along, I want to just offer three observations out of the New Testament that I see that help us in the concept of abiding. The first would be this. If you're going to abide with Christ, it's essential that your image of success is in being like Jesus Christ. I don't know if you think that way, but when I became a follower of Christ, I am glad somebody pointed me that direction. Somewhere at some time, you've got to come to that point because to not have that image, to have other things that tell you who you are or how you're successful, those drive your thoughts and actions every day. 
And yet against that backdrop stands Jesus Christ, like in John 8 where He said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Success. And you have to believe that. And if you believe that, you'll be moved, motivated from within to draw close to Him because He becomes for you what Colossians chapter 3, 4 says. Christ becomes our life. You can't abide until you get to a place where Jesus Christ is the epitome of success in your heart. Secondly, you can't abide unless you learn His Word and learn to trust it over your senses and over what you think are your abilities. Every man and every woman goes out into life thinking they can do whatever they want. As a young man, I had the thought that I could do anything. And life has a way over the years of beating you into a different perspective, doesn't it? You learn it by the school of hard knocks, or you can learn it by the Word of God. But the Word of God would tell you from the very start of your young life what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves. We have abilities, yes. But we're not adequate to meet the demands of this life. We need assistance. And if we really come to understand that, that need, that understanding of our need for assistance, we're driven to someone to find help. For the Christian, that becomes Jesus Christ. But I will never learn to abide until I come to a place where I understand that He knows how to live this life better than I do. And He has power and help that will allow me to be adequate. Because if I try to do it on my own, I will fail. The third is this. If I learn to abide, it will be because I take the time to listen to the Holy Spirit and not my circumstances. Some people, are, their whole life, they're driven from the outside in. And yet, the goal of abiding that brings us to a place of confidence is to help us learn to live from the inside out. As Paul said in Philippians 2, it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. But for me to know that, I've got to stop my frenzy and take the time to listen to what His Holy Spirit might be communicating to me. I don't know of anybody who abides who doesn't take time out of their busy schedule to listen, to reflect, to open themselves up to the Spirit of God and say, teach me. If there's any harmful way in me, reveal that to me. How should I respond here? And then there's quiet, and they learn the practice, the discipline of listening to the living God. And I could say a lot more, but those are some good starters, maybe for each person here. But here's what I want you to know that John wants you to know, and that's this. Our confidence about that coming day is going to only be safeguarded by us moving to abide with Christ right now. To not do that is to set us up for the alternative response. There's a second safeguard, and it concerns our identity that's on the mind of this apostle, our identity is safeguarded by what he calls acts of righteousness. In verse 29 he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now let me break that down a little bit. Have you ever felt like in your life, some place along your Christian life, that maybe you weren't a Christian? Maybe you've had a string of failures in a row where you just kind of came to a place where I don't, I don't really know if maybe I'm not a Christian. 
Uh, have you watched somebody who has professed Christ over and over again, but perhaps because of your opportunity to be beside them in a more intimate session, you start wondering, has this person really come to know Jesus Christ? What's the source? What's the root of our doubt, whether it's ourselves or others? Doesn't it finally come down to behavior, how we behave? What we actually see working out of a person, those tangible, practical acts of righteousness? And if they're not there, if there's been a long gap or maybe not at all, don't you start asking the question, whether it's about yourself or about them, did I miss it? Did they miss it? When you look in the face or the mirror of verse 29 and ask that question, you know what comes back at you, the answer? <laughs> maybe. Maybe you did. When I look into that text, that's what comes back at me. Maybe. I know that's not the answer you wanted to hear this morning. Certainly, I believe that it is an act of faith, and hear me, alone, no works, that bring a person into a transformed, converted, child of God experience. It's by faith that we're saved. But an act of faith, as you know, is something very private and deeply personal, and it's secret. By itself, it's invisible. Genuine faith ultimately has to surface in a person's life for it to become visible, and it becomes visible in acts of righteousness. That's why he says, everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. We know that. That's what he's saying. We know it. There are no exceptions to that. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that you would find anything that would indicate that there's a living, genuine faith that it must certainly bear fruit. In fact, you find the writers of the New Testament talking about that from the negative. It says in James, faith without works is dead. James even says in chapter 2, verse 14, if a man says that he has faith, but he has no works, can his faith save him? And the answer is shouted back, in the Greek New Testament, no. No, it can't. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves and see if you're in the faith. I find it interesting that the people he's asking that is the Corinthian church. Christians, people who are all throughout that church are professing Jesus Christ with their lips. And so when he says test yourself and see if you're in the faith, he's not asking them to go back and test whether they walk the aisle or to test themselves and see if they made a statement of faith or profession of faith or signed a letter with the church or any of those things. No, I think that the clear answer, because they've already professed, is not to go back and profess again. He's asking them to take a look at their life and see if anything has changed. And if there has been no change, if God goes on just as it was before, with the same lifestyle and the same appetites and the same sin patterns, I think there's a legitimate cause for doubt and for some re-examination. Before your Christian life is over, you will meet people like I have met who after professing Christ for years, after years of church going, after going up through confirmation and all the things that went around that, they suddenly realize that for whatever reason, they missed it that they weren't really of the faith. And they'll, they'll even tell you that. They're very vocal and enthusiastic about that the whole time that they grew up, that now that they look back, their faith was passive. It was phony. It was hollow. It acknowledged Christ. 
It, it could speak the language of the church, but there was no inner transformation of spirit, no calling forth of new life in all of that. It was just church going. It was just words. It was just statements, but they were all hollow. But then with this realization, uh, however it came about, whether through a church service or a friend or circumstances, it seemed like they shocked their family and their friends when all of a sudden they come walking to the front of the church or they, they stand up in front of their friends and say, I just became a Christian. And the first response is for their friends, say, no, you didn't. You've always been a Christian. Or you were a Christian. You, you know, family, you became a Christian. I remember when you walked the aisle back when you were 10 years old. And they were going, I know I did that. But I wasn't a Christian. I love the chapter in John Wesley's book when he wrote after he served as an Anglican priest for years and the title of that chapter that still gives me goosebumps was Almost a Christian. And it was about his life as a priest until he came in a life-changing transformation with Jesus Christ. And then nobody could tell him that he wasn't a Christian because he could see reflected in his enthusiasm about life that he had come to know Christ. And those very same people who talked to me, no one can doubt that from that point, their life is different. And therefore, you can look at them with all confidence and say, as John says, we know that there are Christians because everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. I think if the Apostle John were here, he'd put it this way. If he were standing and speaking to our congregation about this verse, he would say this, Little children, I hope everyone here who professes Jesus Christ is born of Him. I really hope that. But I know everyone here who practices righteousness is born of Him. You see, our identity, the sense of who we are as Christians is safeguarded by acts of righteousness or a changed life. It's important for us to know that. There's a third concern that John has, and it, it's about perspective. It's about maybe feeling the Christian experience. Uh, he would say it this way, our perspective can only be safeguarded by reflection. And really, that's what John is doing, reflecting when he comes to verse 1 of chapter 3. And notice how he starts it off. It almost sounds like a plea. See, see, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. The word for how great is really the Greek word for foreign. Here's how he says, he says, can't you see how foreign this love is? This love that the Father has bestowed upon us that, that we can you believe it? We should be called children of God? Now, you know, I read that this week, and I read it over, and I read it over again. And I kept thinking, you know, this should stir something in me. But oftentimes it doesn't. And I begin to think, well, why doesn't it? And I I'm a product of the world in which I live. I've grown up for decades where people have had a me emphasis of how important I am, that I'm okay and, you know, you're okay. The goodness of man, building up my self-esteem in all quarters on radio, TV, therapy, and all that kind of thing, assuring me of my absolute importance in this world and in this universe, and that I deserve the very best, and that whatever's wrong in my life, it's your fault. 
Not me. I'm too good for that. But you're the problem. And so in light of all that, when I come to verse 1 here, you know, all of that infects me. It brings me to this verse, and I read it. See how great a love the Father has for me? And it's almost like, but I deserve it. I mean, sure He would pick me. I mean, look how good I am. And I feel good about myself too, and I'm important. But that is such a misnomer. That is being seduced by our world. It should do something for us. I, I thought, you know, when we won the national championship this last week, I thought, boy, I felt good about me, Arkansan, national champion. And you know, I can almost bring some emotion into that verse if I just change it and say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called national champions. <laughs> see, some of you felt it for the first time, didn't you? Just by kind of throwing that out there. Kind of manipulated the text a little bit. Max Lucado tells a story of a, a plane ride. You know, one of those typical plane rides where all the businessmen walk on looking like droids and they're whipped and they sit down, they buckle their seatbelt and they take out a newspaper, a magazine, or a computer and just kind of go through the flight. And he said he was on one of those flights feeling just that way and a young boy came on. It was his very first plane ride. And he got on, he was pushing all the buttons, and he said, man, look at this. And he was wanting to get into the cockpit and, and look what the captain was doing. He was kind of annoying people. And then when the plane lifted off, he went whoopee as it took off. And he was pointing to the guy next to him who didn't want to be bothered about how everything looked so small. And look at those clouds. And man, we're going above the clouds. And anytime the plane would kind of bump or dip down, he would let out a yell. And in the midst of all that, Lucado suddenly realized that this kid was understanding and feeling and experiencing the thrill of flight. And everybody else was missing it. They were numbed out. They were numbed to it. Did you know you can be numbed out to the fact that you're called a child of God? <laughs> you can hear that and it's kind of, so what? That that is the in most incredible title that you will ever bear your whole life? Have you missed the thrill of it? John says perspective can only be safeguarded. The thrill of the Christian life can only be safeguarded when you take some time to reflect on who you really are. I remember in the men's fraternity, we went through a study of the doctrine of depravity. It's not something you're going to hear taught a lot about today. Just looking at what the Scripture says we are, and yet the doctrine of depravity, I want to assure you, is the most important doctrine for the church today because it gives a context to understand all the wealth that we've received. So the men there, some 70 of us, took the time to explore the extent and the depth of our alienation from God. We took some time to think about what it really meant to be under the judgment of God. We took the time to talk about our corrupt nature, that we're enslaved. We know we're enslaved, and some guys talked about that, to our fleshly appetites. We're subject to the God of this world and manipulate this whole system by a dark God who has us like puppets on a string, that we're imprisoned to a fallen nature that has left us powerless at points to obey God and even at war within ourselves and then at war with others. And when we have problems, we say that the problems are out here when all the testimony of the New and Old Testament says, no, the real problems are within here. And we measure ourselves not by the, the, the acts of righteousness, but we measure ourselves, as so many do, by I don't do any gross evils. 
Scripture never measures you by the absence of unrighteousness. It measures you by the acts of righteousness. But oh, we've got a whole different, we've changed the whole system up. And then we came to Romans chapter 3, which said, There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none of us who does good. There is not even one. See, here's the testimony of how the Scriptures see us. Our throat is an open grave. Our tongues keep deceiving. Our mouths are full of bitterness and cursing. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our paths. The path of, path of peace we have not known, and there is no fear of God before us. You want a good definition of you? That's it. Now, if you don't feel that, we could take some time, and the people closest to you, if they're really honest, they could say, you know, that is you. <laughs> that really is. And then you can take that for all of us, all that, this collective us, this we, and you can, if you can bottle that up, carry it over now, and just drop it onto this verse, verse 1, when it says, See how foreign a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we, the we of Romans 3, that we should be called children of God? You only get that, my friend, through reflection on thinking about who you really are. And when you understand who you really are, the thrill of what you've become will come back. And it will lift your soul. And you will want to drop to your knees and say, Oh God, thank you for this incredible love, this great love that you have bestowed upon me and not looked at me as your enemy, but have invited me into your household as son and daughter and brother. That gives me chills. That's greater than any national championship. Well, there's a last reflection, and it's one that'll kind of twist your theological mind, so hang on a little bit. It's found in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Hallelujah. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, though. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. One of Christianity's most powerful proclamations is that for each one of us who know Jesus Christ, there is a very special life out ahead of us. And that should encourage us. And what that future will actually be like, what it will contain, what it will feel like, is pretty vague in Scripture. It's shrouded in mystery. It's like being in, you know, when you go out to your uncle's farm and being in that old barn, and it's dark in there, and, but it's got cracks in the woodwork, and there's these few rays of light that are piercing through that darkness. When you read the pages of the New Testament, you can't see what the other life is going to be like, but there are a few rays that pierce through the pages of the New Testament. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was caught up in a personal vision of eternity. Into the third heaven is what he called it. But the things that he saw and heard, the wonders that he gazed upon, he says, he was not permitted to speak of in this life. So, as it says here, much of the future is not known to us. It has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. The files are closed. But I want you to know, at times, and you see this a lot in politics, before they give a major speech, they leak a few truths to the press. And the New Testament does that. It leaks a few advance notices about what that future life is going to be like, what our future is going to be like. And there are two that are found here in verse 2. 
The first is this. We know for certain this about the future, that Jesus Christ will come again. It says He will appear. Just as He did the first time, He will a second time. All of human history is moving to this cataclysmic moment where Christ will appear. The second is this. We know that when He appears, according to verse 2, those of us who know Him will be changed. Notice what it says there. It says, we shall be like Him. Now people have read that verse and then they've clicked their mind off, but I'm going to plant the flag and talk a little bit about what that may mean. What it may mean. What does it mean to be like Him? I think we need to be careful to not jump too quickly to what that really is saying. Notice, let's say, what it doesn't say. It doesn't say we shall be just like Him, does it? There's a Greek word, by the way, for being exactly like someone, an exact representation. But they don't, John doesn't use that word here. It doesn't say we shall be just liking. It uses instead a Greek word that means similar. We shall be similar to Him. We know, for instance, from 1 Corinthians 15 that there will come a point in eternity where this corruptible body that you and I wear will be changed, transformed, and made incorruptible, similar to the body that He Himself is in in the future. It'll be a body that will be built for an eternity. Isn't that going to be wonderful? No more sit-ups, no more slim fast, no more stuff like that. You know, just a, just a good body forever. That's what it says we'll receive, to be like Him. We also know that at His coming, sin and death will pass away, so that our natures basically will be similar to His and that they will be free from sin. And that has always been a wonderful thought for me. Not to have to battle against this nature, this corrupt nature that I have, with anger, with lust, with self-centeredness, immorality. In my nature, I'm going to be similar to Him. But then I have to ask the question. I have to ponder this thought. What about the degree of my likeness? How much will I personally be like Jesus Christ? I know I'm going to be similar to Him in body, similar to Him in nature, but what about my own personality, my own character, my own spiritual capacities? How much will I be like Jesus Christ when I see Him? It's a good question, isn't it? Have you ever thought of that? How much will I be similar to Him? To what degree will I be like Jesus Christ? You know, there's another way of saying it that begins to itch at us a little bit. In eternity, will some of us be more similar to Jesus Christ than others in degree? Will some of us have a greater spiritual capacity than others of us? Will some of us have more spiritual power? We will be more in that vein like Jesus Christ than others of us? And if that's true, what will determine that? I think those are real fascinating questions. And I want to just offer some possible answers. I believe that when the Scriptures say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, it is talking about differentness. And I think that differentness may be determined not in us stepping into the future like we stepped into this life where some of us had no control over how big we were going to be or how small, how smart or how dumb, how rich or how poor. Some of that was just given to us by nature. 
But I believe when we step into eternity, much of our capacities, much of our spiritual personalities, much of our power in the different degrees will probably be determined, the degree of our Christ-likeness will be determined by how well we let Christ change us right now. See verse 3? It says, He who has his hope fixed on the future purifies himself just as Christ is pure. And how is he, when is he becoming pure? When he steps into the next life? No. He's being pure. He's being made pure now. As he thinks about Christ, as he pursues Christ, as he makes Christ the center of his life, or she, we're being changed now. And could it be that the changes that are made now are what carries over into eternity to determine what our capacities are, our personalities are, and what degree and how much power. I think there's a lot of Scripture that would lean that direction. You might turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about being changed. And I think we get a sense of degree in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 17 and 18. Paul says, Now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. He's a liberator. But we, and now he turns to us, but we with an unveiled face, and that unveiled face came when I came to Christ, and the life of unbelief was ripped away so I could finally see Jesus Christ for who He is. Now we're beholding, as if in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. That's abiding in Him. It's looking into His Word. It's praying. It's listening. We're looking into the face of Christ. And as we do that over a lifetime, notice what it says. We are being transformed into the same image. We're becoming similar to Him. And then he has this little phrase, from glory to glory. In the Greek, it's from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. From one capacity of glory and image bearing to another capacity. From one power source of the image to another degree, a greater degree of power. That's really what he's talking about here. And I believe when I step into glory and He appears to me and I can see Him as verse 2 says, just as He is, what I'm going to see, which has remained from my life, how much of my life that's left that looks like His. And it's those capacities and that personality and that degree of Christ-likeness that I wear into eternity. You know what that does for me right now? That makes me take very seriously every day that I live. And I believe that is exactly what John is getting at when he encourages us in being Christ-like. You see, our hope of Christ-likeness will be safeguarded by this understanding and by our perspective of what the future is really going to be like as we get these little glimpses of it in this land, in this world. As a father, I have a great hope for my kids. And I think of them all the time about how I can protect them from all the dangers and evils, not only without, but within. But you know, all I can do is warn. All I can do is try to set up these safeguards. Only they, only they, can listen to it. It's the same with you and me. 
Martha Snell Nicholson offers a poem that I think is a real fitting capstone to this section of Scripture here this morning. She writes this, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and He shows me His plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had He had His way, and I see. How I blocked Him here and I checked Him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though He loves me still. Lord of the years that are left to me, I now give them into Thy hand. Take me and break me and mold me to the pattern Thou hast planned. May God give you that same sense of, O Lord of the years that are left to me. Help me live it in a way that would be pleasing to you so that I might stand with absolute confidence, so excited that when I get there, I don't want to just stand there. <laughs> I want to run right into my daddy's arms. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these safeguards that John has given us. Certainly they are not ancient. They are very relevant. And for our body, it's truth like this that begins to form these channels to which we then run our life like lanes in a track meet so that we might finish and finish well. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, help us to be people of great discernment, people who honor your word above our feelings or what we think we could do, but people who live it out because we know what you want us to do so that when we finish, we finish with great expectation of meeting you face to face, our great God and lover of our soul. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.